may be seated this morning. And I would invite you to take out your Bible opening to the book of Revelation this morning as I hope you'll follow along as we begin this series together this morning. Revelation chapter 1 is the last book of the Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, it's like the exclamation point at the end of a long sentence that is the Bible. That's a quote from a writer named Jim Hamilton who wrote a a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation. I think that is an excellent way to frame our thinking about the book of Revelation here at the outset of our study. I'll say it again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, it's like the exclamation point at the end of a long sentence that is the Bible. What that statement does is it helps us to begin to to imagine this book of Revelation uh, not independent of everything that came up uh, before it, but as a significant part of it, a big, bold exclamation point at the end of a story of redemption that began in Genesis chapter 1. That story that began way, way, way back in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis with the creation of man, a people in the image of God who would be God's people, his representatives, his ambassadors, and live to his glory with every breath, with every heartbeat, and every aspect of their lives. But it didn't take very long. The ruin of that man, the fall into sin, the the presence of Satan and temptation. You have the curses that God pronounces upon Satan upon his seed, and upon man, and, upon, and their seed. And you have this promise that even in the midst of the curses, there will be a Messiah to come, the seed of the woman, who will fix everything that went wrong. And then everything in the Old Testament is kind of, of an unraveling, an unfolding of those promises of God about the coming Messiah. As you proceed through Uh, revelation, the the revelation of scripture, you learn more and more about who this Messiah is and what he's going to come. And he becomes even more significant because even God's people are realizing God says, do this. We say all that you have said we will do, but then we can't. And so the need for this Messiah is just, it's it's blooming, it's blossoming. And, And then by the time you get to the New Testament, you have the inauguration, if you will, of the promise of God. The Messiah comes in the form of Jesus Christ. He lives, he dies, he's raised from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, having fulfilled all that the Father sent him to do. He was despised, he was rejected, but he fulfilled on the cross in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, all that was necessary to redeem a people unto himself, that they would honor and glorify God with every breath, with every heartbeat, fulfilling the original intent. And then you have the rest of the New Testament epistles, which are the just application of Christ Jesus, life lived unto Jesus with every breath, with every heartbeat. It's all about Jesus looking unto Jesus. You see it applied. And then the book of Revelation comes in as the final consummation of the story. It's the exclamation point at the end of this long sentence. The book of Revelation explains to us how it is that God, through the promised seed of the woman, 
who is Jesus Christ, fulfills the covenant promise he made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to rescue and redeem the people unto himself, to defeat Satan, to rout evil, to restore the creation, and to eventually and for eternity create a place where he will dwell in the midst of his people who live unto him forever. I'd say this is a big, bold exclamation point that really brings everything together. All of the symbolic imagery, everything that we see or will see in this study is depicted the power of God to accomplish everything he said he was going to accomplish from the very beginning. Now, I've not preached from the book of Revelation very much, never really had much desire to. I kind of went through some of the seven churches early, early on in ministry. I probably regret most of those messages now. Uh, I think I preached through or or preached a passage in Revelation on worship uh, with regard to the the beings worshiping Christ around the throne. And I think a funeral message, I may have uh, used Revelation, but that's about it over the course of 13 years. It's just not something I've ever really felt compelled to do. Uh, to, to provide some kind of a full explanation of the book of Revelation. But I think the time is right. The time is right because the fact is there is not a book of the Bible that is more relevant to us today than the book of Revelation. That might surprise you. I didn't say there's not a more book that's more relevant for the future than the book of Revelation. I want to make clear there's not a book more relevant for us today than the book of Revelation. And I say that not because the book of Revelation lays out a blueprint for events that are going to happen in the future between now and the second coming of Jesus. That's not the primary benefit of this book. The book of Revelation is not intended to satisfy our curiosity about the future. Revelation is in our Bibles for this purpose, to reassure suffering Christians to reassure persecuted Christians, to reassure Christians who are struggling in this Genesis 3 world, anybody? To reassure Christians that God wins through the triumph of the Lamb. To those living in a Genesis 3 world, that's us. We are living in the midst of a constant battle, an ongoing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We were told about that in Genesis 3. It's kind of the umbrella that covers all of redemptive history. And though even at the cross, the enemy, the seed of the serpent, was defeated, he's not been done away with once and for all. That's coming, but he's still around. He's still, and it's a battle living in this Genesis 3 world with the seed of the serpent there. And sometimes, I don't know about you, it is true for me, it feels like the seed of the serpent is winning. When it comes to persecution, not necessarily that we are going through that, but there are some who do in our day. When we uh, are struggling with temptation to sin, failures with sin, trials and afflictions in our lives, in our homes, when we're battling sickness and illness, when we're watching loved ones battle cancer, when we're standing over the casket of somebody we love. You can't tell me it doesn't feel like the seed of the serpent is kicking butt. That the seed of the serpent is winning. The book of Revelation is given for Christians to have something to cling to in the midst of all this. Cling to Christ. 
Cling to him. Because the promise here is God triumphs over Satan and all these elements of the Genesis 3 world that we live in through the ultimate triumph of the Lamb. Cling to Jesus. The book, message of the book of Revelation is very consistent with everything else we've seen. The message of the gospel is look unto Jesus. Revelation is just another dimension of keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus and clinging to him. I love how one commentator writes to give us a, a broad perspective of the goal of Revelation. He writes, the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. Revelation is the Bible's battle cry of victory, for in it, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, is revealed the final victory of God over all the forces of evil. And as such, it is an encouragement to God's people to persevere in the assurance that their final reward is certain and to worship and glorify God despite trials and despite temptations to march to the world's drumbeat. Man, that's, it's a mouthful, but he's right. Revelation is given to be an encouragement to struggling Christians, and I would contend that's us, an encouragement to cling to Jesus and to cling to the hope that is found in him. I would submit to the degree that we have been led to think anything otherwise about the book of Revelation speaks to how far we removed we are from the book that John wrote. I'm profoundly persuaded that the Apostle John could sit in on many sermons on the book of Revelation that use his own writings, and he would not recognize what they are saying because it does not come close to what he was talking about. And I hope that as we approach this book together, we'll unite our hearts together. We'll join together with a sense of awe with a sense of excitement, a willingness to check, and this is true for me, all of our preconceived systems at the door, and just let's just let the Spirit of God speak to his church. He's been speaking from Genesis all the way to Jude. Now, why would we stop now? Let's see what he has to say about how it all comes together, about how this book is really about worshiping Jesus Christ, clinging to him, with awe and with joy and excitement, even in our darkest hour. That's what this is about. In our darkest hour, there is joy in Christ. Revelation's focus is on the unimpeachable sovereignty of God to bring his people into everlasting joy. Man, there's no book more relevant to us today. Let's look together at the prologue this morning. Revelation chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 together. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. 
for the time is near. Well, these first three verses are simply the prologue of, of the Apostle John's epistle, apocalypse epistle. And here in these first three verses, all our focus on this morning is an introduction to the book of Revelation. And, and what I want to draw out of this, I, I hope you'll see, is drawn just right out of the text. We're drawing exactly what John himself is telling us he wants us to know about everything that's about to come in this book. We're going to focus upon the content. We're going to focus upon the, the communication. It's a very elegant way this book is communicated to us. And then a commendation that this text brings to us as we open it up together. But first of all, I want us to focus upon the content of the book of Revelation, the subject and the nature that John here tells us, this is what this book is about. This is what I'm going to be talking about. And if you go beyond this, you've missed what I'm talking about. So when it comes to the book of Revelation, Christians today, are, are they tend to be polarized into two different groups. On the one hand, and this is probably the majority, and maybe most of us, this group almost entirely ignores the book of Revelation. I mean, we have an appreciation, we have a curiosity for it. Uh, when we're going through our Bible reading systems, we, we don't necessarily skip it. We read through it, but we don't spend a lot of time meditating upon it. it just, it's overwhelming. Uh, maybe a few texts like the Behold, I Stand at the Door and Knock passage or the Worship passages or, or Revelation 21 and 22, the new, new heaven and new earth. I mean, those uh, we can kind of do something with. But beyond that, the middle section is just, it blows our mind. It's unfamiliar to us. And, and the truth of the matter is, most of the people, most of the influences in our lives who have taken us through the book of Revelation, it's so complicated, it's so overwhelming. The, the, the magnitude of charts that usually accompany that section are just so overwhelming. We just kind of, I got a gist of it and we move on. The opposite extreme is to be obsessed with this book. It is almost to negate everything else because you're just absolutely obsessed with the book of Revelation more than any other part of Scripture. And in it, we find all kinds of futuristic events and all kinds of questions answered. And we, uh, and we spend all of our time, uh, Revelation open in one hand, newspaper open in the other. And, and, and we find in it, uh, we find Hitler and we find bin Laden and we find President Obama or President Trump. Or we find, we assign, we, we read hand in hand and we're absolutely obsessed with trying to connect dots that aren't intended to be connected. There is a better way. There is a better way than these two extremes. And it's not my, my way. It's what John himself tells us right here. A way that is clearly revealed in the opening words of verse 1. This is, John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. That's our word apocalypse. And contrary to modern thought, apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. Apocalypse is a Greek word that simply means to unveil something, to reveal something, to disclose something, something that was previously hidden, previously unknown. It is unraveled and, and, and made bare. It's, if you think about rolling up your sleeve, it's, it's, this is apocalypse. It is rolling up and exposing what was previously covered, my arm. It's an unveiling. 
God is peeling back the veil and showing something that he's been hinting at all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And he's been giving us more and more of as we go and into the New Testament. We're seeing more and more of it and the fulfillment of it and the inauguration of it in the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ and, and even in the New Testament apostles. But, but how, how, does it, how does it all happen? How do, when is it just over and done with and it's accomplished and it is finished? That's what Revelation is. It's God pulling back the veil. And that's really why it, it shouldn't frighten us. I, I get why it does. It's frightened me. But it shouldn't. Everything in it is meant to be a revelation. Everything in it is meant to make things more clear, not obscure things. It's not intended to complicate things. It's not intended to be confusing. It's meant to be understandable. It's meant to bring things to light. And I think that's part of the reason why some of us are overwhelmed by it is because we don't know how to think about it appropriately. The imagery confuses us. There's so many diverse interpretations that I, I, don't, I don't even know which one of those I fit into. And somewhere, what gets lost? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It fits right in with the whole of the Bible, the whole storyline of the Bible. Everything has been about Christ, Jesus Messiah. It's all been about him, looking unto him. It is the gospel revelation. The theme doesn't change. It's looking to Jesus in his victory. Now, that being said, I, you're not hearing me deny that there are a lot of crazy, unusual, just downright weird things that we see in the book of Revelation. But what that does say is that, well, we probably need to approach this a little bit differently than we do other books of the Bible. This is a very unique genre of scripture. It's called apocalyptic e epistle. Epistle, is, it's just like the New Testament letters. It takes the form of a letter, but it's apocalyptic in nature. And it's very unique in that, which means that we don't read it the way we read all the other things. It's apocalyptic literature. Think about it this way. If you and I were to go, or if you were to take your family to a foreign country, that was very different from America. It has foreign customs, different language. Would you not have to approach your time in that country differently than you do your time here in America? Absolutely. You understand you're going to have to adapt to the customs and the culture of the country that you're visiting. You're going to have to have some working knowledge or some way of interpreting their language. You're not going to, ex you're not going to expect them to speak your language. You're, you're going to understand they do things differently than you do. Certain things that are commonplace here in America, you might go there, and it's rude to do it there. You've got to learn things about the culture, and, and, and so it is when you approach various genres of Scripture. You've got to learn the customs. You've got to learn the culture. You've got to learn the culture of the genre and how to respond appropriately to it. One of the common mistakes when it comes to interpreting Revelation is we try to treat it like a narrative. Or we try to treat it like history, futuristic history, but like history. And that's not the intent of the book. When we do that, that's when we find ourselves engulfed in a lot of problems. When we start to deal with it as though it's literal narrative or literal history, then you take some really weird images 
and we're trying to make them literal, and we come up with all kinds of crazy things. So the first thing we need to understand, that revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is twofold. Number one, it's the revelation from Jesus Christ. It is information, news, a disclosure that comes from Jesus Christ himself. But the other nuance of that, it is about Jesus Christ. It is about him. He's the source of it. We're going to see that. We're going to trace that in just a minute. But also, he is the subject, the nature of it. Everything in Revelation has to do with him. Not Napoleon, not the Roman Catholic Church, not Hitler, not bin Laden, not President Trump. It has everything to do with Jesus. I hope that doesn't disappoint. In fact, I hope that at the outset it begins to encourage you. that Okay, this might be doable. This might be something that, that instead of being something totally foreign might actually fit in with something that I really have some knowledge about, some affection for, a desire to know more. Jesus himself. The book of Revelation is very consistent with everything that's come before it. Our task as we go through the study is not to read world events into the book, but rather to take the principles and the truth about Christ out of the book and apply it to our historical situations. There's a vast difference. Do you see it? Not assigning reading events into it, but taking the Christ revealed here and applying it to our Genesis 3 world. It's all about Christ. He's the hero of the whole Bible. He will be the hero of the book of Revelation as well. So let me just kind of put it this way. The whole of the Bible, including Revelation, is not written to satisfy the horoscope tendencies of our human nature. There's a part of us, we want to know the future. We want to know, have a knowledge of future events. And, and there's a part of us that may even hope that Revelation will glean some of that for us only at the outset. Revelation doesn't do that. It's not intended to do that. It's to be understood spiritually, practically. It's to be encourage us. It's not to be understood superstitiously or speculatively. It's to be interpreted in light of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. So what's the book about? Broadly, it's about the Lamb of God in the midst of his throne. And when we were reading through it last week, I mean, you just could not miss the lamb on his throne in victory. It's about that lamb, that that one revealed on the throne, that's Jesus, and that he wins. God triumphs through his son, Jesus Christ, and that God has a lot to say to you and I about how that lamb practically applies to us today in our hardships, in our afflictions, in our sufferings. That Christ is meant to be applied. Now, one of the big issues surrounding the, surrounding the book of Revelation is, how do you view this truth? Go back to verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. It's from Jesus, which God gave to him. God gave to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. That, that phrase there at the very end. How do we handle that? He's showing us things that must soon take place. 
how soon, I guess is the question we're asking there. And there's no shortage of answers. Again, there are people who say the book of Revelation is to be viewed in terms of the immediate context only. One of the things we're going to see next week, this book is written to seven churches, seven real, authentic, literal churches. After John penned this letter, it was mailed out, and it was circulated among those seven churches, and they did what we did last week. They sat around, and they read it in one sitting, and they, they heard the voice of God through the inspired word of God. This is a very real letter written to real churches, re facing real persecution, real hurts, real struggles. And there is a position that says that the things that are shortly to come, to the time is near, the things that must soon take place means in John's lifetime to those seven churches. Now, there's others who say, no, 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 no. No, the, 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 the things that must shortly come to pass speaks to the whole of the New Testament era, the, the, the last times, if you will, that in the Bible, the last days run from Jesus' ascension until when Jesus returns. Uh, th that is biblically the last days. That whole long window that we're well into 2,000 years and who knows how much longer. There's some who say, no, this applies, the, the things that must shortly come to pass speak to things that uh, are going to be transpiring over the course of the last days before the second coming of the Lord. And, and those are just a couple of positions that scratch the surface. So what I want to do here in this introduction is set out for you the various positions of how are we to understand how this book applies in light of these are things that must soon take place. And I'm going to try to be quick here. I'm going to try to be brief here. I'm going to use the technical terms, not because I want you to know them, but because I, I want you to kind of have a general idea of, of how we're proceeding going forward. There are five general views when it comes to, to how it is this applies in light of these are things that must soon be taken place. The first approach is just simply called the preterist approach, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. It comes from a Latin word, preter, which means past or gone by. And so the, the preterist approach understands the whole of the book of Revelation in terms of the circumstances of John's day. It takes into a, uh, the, the fact that he's writing to seven clear churches and that he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to give hope to them. If he speaks about a future that doesn't help them very much. That's the preterist position. And in order to serve those seven churches, he has to be writing about something that will be fulfilled in their lifetime. That's the preterist approach, that it applies to things in the past, most likely fulfilled sometime in the first century, though you don't want to get caught up in the weeds. Sometimes it goes as late as the fifth century. So the preterist approach would say, these are things that have already been fulfilled for the sake of the seven churches to whom he wrote. Now, the strength of this argument is that it takes into account, Paul, oh, excuse me, John is writing to seven churches. Real people, real hurts, real struggles, the things that must shortly come to pass, it applies to them. That's a strength of that argument. I think the weakness is that uh, if that's the case, then why should we bother reading it, <laughs> right? I mean, why would God put it in his canon, preserve it for you and I today, if there's no benefit, if there's no um, application, practical benefit to us today. 
So there's a second position called the historicist approach, the historicist approach. And this is the approach that most of the reformers believe. That would have been Martin Luther, John Calvin, a lot of the reformers in the 16th century. And they believed that the book of Revelation and the time, the time is near, it was a, a visionary symbolization of the whole of church history. That, 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 that what you have and the unfolding of uh, judgments and bowls and trumpets and all those things is symbolic of church history, an unfolding of things in church history. And so what you have there is, is things, they're finding events, usually in the Western church or in the European church, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, the corruption of the papacy, all kinds of different things, and they're assigning this trumpet is this that happened in church history, or, or this bowl is this that happened in church history. And so it lays out, it views the Revelation as a chart of world history. And the strength of this is that hey, it gives a great broad view of church history. The weakness is it tries to force the book of Revelation into specific world events. And the thing is, it's usually the European church or the Western church. It takes no account of, of the rest of the church as a whole. It appears to have no relevance for those outside of uh, those in Europe or the Western world. So it really limits the application of the book of Revelation. That's the historicist approach, though. It has strengths, but it has a, a, a massive weakness as well. There's a third approach that's the futurist approach. Just bear with me for a minute, the futurist approach. This is probably the one that's most common to most of us. This is the one that was common at the beginning of the last century. That's the one probably we grew up on. The futurist view holds that the entire book, apart from chapters 2 and 3, those seven letters to the seven, but everything after that is prophecy surrounding the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming. It holds that all of the visions that we see from chapter one through chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter six through chapter 19, they lie in the future. They are future events that are, we're still waiting. There's a series of events that uh, this has to happen, and then this has to happen, and then this has to happen in order for Jesus to return. Um, and that's real, usually what we grew up on. That's usually where the charts come into play. Uh, this is a view, it was predominant in the 20th century. It has lost a lot of steam in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, the weakness of this approach is that it does not take into account John is writing to seven real churches in his day. And the futurist approach has no practical application for them. It's no help or benefit to them. It detracts from the context of which this text is written. It's always looking forward to a second coming that is sometime out in the future. There's always a focus on the rapture. There's always a focus on Revelation chapter 20, which, according to your view of the rapture, wouldn't even apply to some Christians if, Christians if they're not even there. So it, it really runs into some problems. What is God's purpose in preserving this for us? The strength of it, oh, it does declare Christ's victory, his triumph over all things. It's wonderful to that end. There is a fourth approach. It's called the idealist approach. This view says that the prophecies of Revelation cannot be identified with any particular event in church history, either in the past or in the future. But rather, it's symbolic in nature. It symbolically represents what we're told about in Genesis 3, 
a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that, that goes on throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and throughout church history. That the book of Revelation is symbolically depicting this contrast, this tension, this war between good and evil. It's a timeless portrayal, is what the idealist view says, a timeless portrayal of this epic struggle between the kingdom of the seed of the serpent and the kingdom of the seed of the woman. And this approach says that the book of Revelation is relevant for everyone in all ages. It fits because everyone is living in a Genesis 3 world. Everyone is battling the tension, the struggle between good and evil. And that Revelation is a symbolic representation of the battle between good and evil. And when John writes, all of these things are things that, that must shortly come to pass, it takes into account, with God, a thousand years is his one day, and one day is his a thousand years. That's, it's, it's, that's not a problem. It's nothing in the mind of God. The strength of the idealist view is that it makes the book of Revelation incredibly practical and encouraging to every Christian in every generation. If this view has a weakness, uh, it, it could be that someone doesn't really buy into the, uh, these are the things that must soon come to pass, and the way that fits is with God, he's timeless. A thousand years is one day. Some may argue, and some have argued, it doesn't take that seriously into account. So that's four of the five. The preterist approach, the historicist approach, the futurist approach, and the idealist approach. And therein is some of the confusion why we avoid the book of Revelation, right? Therein is, you've already lost me in this sermon series. I bet there's most of you in the room that are thinking, oh, great. Now he's done what I was hoping he wasn't going to do. We're going to bring it all back together. Which is it? One of the great scholars on the book of Revelation, Greg Beale, argues, I think, quite convincingly. They go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. I'm trying to stick as close to the text as I can in this sermon series. Greg Beale shows us that when John writes that these are things that must soon take place, and then in verse 3, he's going to say things like, for the time is near, and then throughout the book, he's going to say things like, quickly, things are happening quickly, this must occur quickly. These are biblical allusions to Daniel chapter 2. Biblical allusions, John's substitute, if you will, to Daniel's words in the Old Testament when over and over in his prophecy, he writes, in the latter days, in the latter days, in the latter days. So if we go back to the 6th century B.C. to when Daniel is writing his apocalyptic epistle, same genre as the book of Revelation, when he's writing about his prophecy, saying these are the things that will happen in the latter days, for him, in the 6th century B.C., they were future they were future events, a distant future. John now steps into the storyline of redemptive history and says, I'm picking up what Daniel said, and I'm declaring now, these are the things that must soon take place. Now, they're being inaugurated. What Daniel said will soon take place, or in the latter days, here now John is substituting, it applies to my own day. Daniel's words apply not just to my own day, but to the entire course of human history until the Lord Jesus returns. What Daniel expected to be in the distant future 
John says, it is true now. Prophetic fulfillment had begun in John's day. That was, that's, that's what we see there in verse 1. The things that must soon take place, fulfillment is beginning. It's here. And it was a process. It didn't happen all at one time and, at one and, and it's done instantaneously. It's through a variety of events that happened through church history over time. Covenant Life Church, we are living in the last days. But everyone's been living in the last days since the ascension of Christ. Your question probably is, are we in the last days of the last days? To which I say, I don't know. I won't speculate. I mean, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd love to believe we're in the last days of the last days, but biblically, we've always been in the last days. The point is that what was future to Daniel, John, in this closing letter, steps into the biblical storyline, this exclamation point to the whole story, and says, and now it's fulfilled. Now it is being fulfilled in my day and in the days to come until Jesus comes. Which brings me to the fifth position. The fifth position for how do we understand these words and how do we process the rest of the book of Revelation in light of these are things that must soon take place. This fifth position is called the eclectic position. Eclectic just simply means I grab a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here. In all the previous four I went over, there are strengths and weaknesses of each of each one. We have no interest in the weaknesses. But where there are strengths, we want to value those. We want to take hold of those. And the eclectic approach draws a little bit from each of the four previous sections and embraces the apparent strengths, rejects the apparent weaknesses. And this is the position that most solid, respected theologians take today with the heaviest accent being on the idealistic approach. We take a little bit from all of them, but the heaviest accent being on the idealistic approach, that this book is a symbolic presentation of the ongoing battle between the seed of the woman and seed of the serpent that was begun in Genesis chapter 3. And that's the approach I'll be using in this study as well. I believe it to be the most responsible biblically, and I believe it to be most fitting with what we saw in Genesis, what we see throughout the unfolding of biblical revelation in the book of Hebrews. We want to be faithful to that, to the message that's been portrayed all along. And what this position does, it affirms that there are parts of the book of Revelation that were fulfilled in John's day for those seven churches. And there are still things yet to be done. So whatever it is John is saying in the book of Revelation, it has application to all Christians, to you and I, even in our day today. It takes these bizarre, vivid symbols to help us to better understand the triumph of the Lamb, the triumph of the seed of the woman over the triumph over the seed of the serpent. When we come to that middle section that overwhelms us all, the, the bowls and the trumpets and, and, and the seals and all those things, rather than seeing it literally as this has to happen and then this has to happen and then this has to happen, which was the 20th century futuristic approach, 
we're going to look at it symbolically. And I'll, there's textual reason for doing so. We're going to see it symbolically as trans as transcendent, not tied to any one specific period or one, any one specific event, but viewing these revelations, these symbolic revelations of the power of God and triumphing over the Lamb to, in all generations. Now, we're going to see that really what John is doing here is he's upholding one truth, and he's, just, he's letting us look at it from different vantage points. All the same thing, but from different vantage points. It's kind of like if you, if you were to go and, and travel to Mount Rushmore, and you see those presidential faces. You're on this side of it, and you're taking pictures, and, and there's George Washington's face, and you can kind of see they're blurred over there, but you keep moving around, and you keep clicking pictures. Same mountain. You're seeing the same thing, but you're getting different vantage points. You're seeing different nuances. Different things are more clear over here than they were over there. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. The message is God wins. The triumph of the Lamb. And encourage a practical word of encouragement for us. And all along the way, in order to best help us in our suffering, in our hardship, in our afflictions, he holds out, look to Jesus in his victory. And because of the variety of sufferings you go through, let me show you different aspects of it and how it applies to you and your situation. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So what's Revelation about? Christ's glorious victory over all things. That Christ is the hope for all believers in the first century and in the 21st century. But there's also a warning with the book of Revelation. The day of the Lord is fast approaching. And Christ is all that you need. But you must look to him. Our goal in this sermon series is to see the victory of Jesus Christ in all the various nuances of its resplendent glory that is revealed in those middle sections. It is about Christ in that middle section. All those seals and bowls and, 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 and trumpets, it's about Christ. That's what John tells us in verse 1. And we're going to see him, and, and that is why over and over, and we, we followed along last week when we were reading it aloud. You just see there's just a, a break in the text and all who are, are privy to this, they just bow and worship and throw themselves down at the Lamb who's on the throne. Why? Because they're in awe of future events? Goodness, no. Because they see what we've missed. All of this is about Jesus and his glory and his greatness and his victory. And with God's help, may he help us to see that as well. If our reading of the book of Revelation does not force us to do what John himself does in chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, that's Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. If this does not lead us to do that, we've missed it. We've gone awry. If the book of Revelation takes us closer to the newspaper or the news or Time Magazine, or whatever, than it does Jesus, God forbid. We have sorely, sorely missed it. This book is designed 
to get us in our suffering. The seven churches, persecution, hardship, affliction. You and I, our hardship, our affliction, our sickness, in the face of cancer, in the face of looking over the casket of a loved one, to cling to Jesus, worshiping him, celebrating him, honoring him, being encouraged that in him is the victory over all this. I want us to also see, that's just verse 1. It just sets the tone. It sets the tone. What is the content of this book? I readily understand, and I'll just say this parenthetically. You may have heard some of what I just said and may absolutely disagree, and you, we will still be buddies, I promise you. <laughs> I hope that over the course of a year or however long the sermon series takes, I don't know, um, I hope with God's help you, you might begin to see it this way. But I assure you, I, I, I harbor no intent to, um, to create conflict in this area. It shouldn't. But I think what unites us together is Christ. And that's what this book is about. I want us to see, secondly, in this introductory sermon, very quickly in these last two, a, a beautiful communication. In verse 2, the, uh, it's highlighted how this book came to be ours. And it really is magnificent. Verse 2. Well, let's start back. The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So you get the idea. Again, this is God's word, God's inspired word. He gave it to his son, Jesus, who then gave it to the angels, who then gave it to the Apostle John, who then delivered it to us. Because, yes, it was written to seven churches, but symbolically it is for all Christians and all generations to us as well. Man, that's magnificent communication. That's extravagant, wouldn't you say? I mean, I mean the inspiration of Scripture is magnificent to begin with, but here we're privy to something that we don't see anywhere else. There is a... A, a, a filtering down of this message. And I think it speaks to the magnificence, the importance of this message. Just a few things that I think this communication tells us about the book of Revelation. First, it is a personal letter. It is a personal letter from God to Jesus to angel to John to us. You know, when we send something in the mail and we want to make sure it gets there, right? We, we, we do something, we usually go to the post office. And we'll send it registered delivery. When there's something important, you're not just going to put a stamp on it, stick it in the mailbox, and you hope it gets there, right? You're going to want some kind of a trail. You're going to want to know, this is too important. I want to know it arrives at its destination. Likewise, God makes sure we get this letter. Make sure that it's included in the final, the final book in his canon of Scripture. Because this is the fulfillment, the cap on everything that was begun in, in, in Genesis. The book is incomplete if we don't have revelation. And so it's a, a personal letter from God to us in the midst of our struggle and hardship to be encouraged, to find hope. He lays out, he unveils for us the victory that is ours in Christ. It's not only a personal letter, it's a revealed apocalypse. 
a revealed apocalypse. We already said at the very beginning, apocalyptic literature, you cannot treat it the way you do uh, Old Testament narrative or history or, 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 or even gospel. Each genre has its own set of rules when it comes. And a major mistake of 20th century eschatology, which most of us grew up on, was it read Revelation just like it read historical narrative. When you're reading historical narrative, you're, you're seeing historical events, historical places, historical things. And if you bring that into Revelation, you're doing the same thing. You're trying to find historical realities to match what you're reading. That's not apocalyptic literature, nor was it intended to be. That's not just me. Look at what we see in the text. John tells us so in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Here's the key. He made it known. God, through Christ, made this known ultimately to John through the angels or us. But the Greek word there, he made it known, is a Greek word that's translated symbolize, to signify, to communicate by way of symbols the things that must soon come to pass. And it really is, it goes back to Daniel chapter 2. The Greek word that John uses here, there is a Greek word that, uh, to communicate to, to, to help you know something. Norizo is that word. It's common, you see it all over. It is not by accident that that word is not used here. But a Greek word that's a transliteration of the Hebrew idea we see in Daniel chapter 2. You tell me, Daniel, or the vision that Daniel interprets, is that a literal vision or is that a symbolic one? The, the, right, Daniel tells us this symbolizes this, this symbolizes this, this. He himself lays out that is symbolic literature. And John here absolutely uses the Greek version of that Hebrew word that Daniel uses. Rather than using the more common, just I'm passing along information that you may know these things, or God's passing along these things that I may know them, but to symbolically signify. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, an allusion to previous apocalyptic literature. This is John's way of telling us, as you're reading what's about to come, it's going to get weird. Man, there's going to be some funky things that, you know, beasts and horns and all kinds of different things, lions, lambs, crazy things. It's a symbolic representation of a greater reality. It's symbolic. And John himself sets that out for us here through the word that he used. God made it known. God symbolically communicated these truths of God's final victory over evil, over Satan, over all Genesis 3 things. Symbolically. It's a revelation that comes in a vision, for crying out loud. We don't get this many other places in Scripture. Usually the biblical writer says, and I heard. John says, I saw this. I saw that. Symbolic visions. The numbers are symbols. The colors are symbols. The patterns are symbols. The animals, they do weird, crazy, powerful things. It's symbolic of a greater power. Now don't. Don't turn me off at that point. Just bear with us as we go through it. It's pointing us to Christ, the brilliance, the radiance, the majesty of Christ. It's communicated to us, and as a divine vision, it comes from God himself. God showed him these things in symbolic images. 
and it's communicated to us as a spoken prophecy. In, in verse 3, John himself calls this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, one of the mistakes is we become very short-sighted prophecy. For most people in our day, we think of something future. But in the, in, all throughout Scripture, prophecy was, yeah, it can speak to future things, but it has present-day applications. It's a word of God now, a prophecy from God, repent now. Not in the future, now. Do it now. And it's the same thing here. We need to keep these things in mind as we go through the book of Revelation, that the communication of it is so elegant, and it reveals to us a lot of how we need to interpret everything that goes forward. And then finally, this wonderful commendation we have in verse 3. John writes, and I don't, I, I, I've gone back and tried to, I don't think we see this in any other biblical passage referring to the book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is Jesus himself luring us into the book, luring us, saying, you will be greatly blessed. You will be so, Greek word, happy. You who are seven churches being persecuted, you who are 21st century church, overwhelmed, afflicted, hardships, illness, cancer, death. I'm just discouraged. I'm depressed. Fill in the blank. Read this and you will be blessed slash happy, fulfilled, content. Let me ask you, if you, if whatever you're dealing with in your life, if I told you and you didn't know it was the book of Revelation, I said, I've got a book that's about 15 pages. Man, it it promises to bless you in the midst of what you're going through right now and to help you find happiness. Would you take the time to read those 15 pages? You'd probably do so this afternoon if things are bleak enough and dark enough. And that's what John tells us about the book of Revelation. He says, read, he commends it to us. And he commends it to us. Here's four things we need to do. As we're reading it, it's got to be you're reading about Christ. We're not reading it just for reading's sake. It's about Christ. It's connected to everything that's come before it. It's about Christ. The blessing that is yours is through Christ, who he is and what he's done. Secondly, he says in this passage, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. So as you're reading, you're reading about Christ, but also our, the responsibility we bear is to be obedient to Christ. Blessing doesn't come just because we read it, it's by obeying. That is, by taking the words of this prophecy, the declaration, the unveiling of the power of Christ and the fullness and the majesty of Christ and all of these different nuances of that we're in the middle section that we're not accustomed to looking at in this way, to look at that, and as you see it, bring that to bear on your life, on the, on the discouragement, on the depression, on the, the affliction, on the, the cancer, on the illness. on the, Bring those things to bear. That's what it is to be obedient to this book. There is blessing. Cling to Christ in those things. Knowing that this world shall pass, our hope is not in this. Our hope is in the Jesus we're looking unto here in the book of Revelation. And then he says, for the time is near. Be prepared. As we read this book, it is not just to fill our heads with information. It is not just to fulfill our curiosities. If we ignore the Jesus Christ who is King and Lord depicted in various ways in this book, it is to our peril. 
the fact of the matter is. Jim Hamilton said, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's like an exclamation point at the end of a long sentence that is the Bible. An exclamation point serves a couple of purposes in grammar. It, it can be used to declare excitement, to declare, hey, this is massive, this is wonderful. But it can also be used to draw attention to massive terror. And so just as there is a blessing in this book of happiness, of joy, of blessing for those who read it and keep it in obedience to Christ, who are overcoming their Genesis 3 situations by clinging to Jesus, there's also a reverse of the blessing of verse 3, a curse that he who reads this book and doesn't take Jesus seriously, and doesn't cling to Jesus, and isn't putting all their hope in him in the midst of their hardships. The time is near. The time is at hand. And if you don't look to Jesus, you will be eternally cursed. My earnest prayer is that we come to the book of Revelation not out of just curiosity, or just help me figure things out. But that we come seeking Christ Jesus more than anything else in our life. Let's bow our heads together this morning. My apologies for the introductory message. There was a lot of ground to cover. But I pray that it sets our feet in the right direction. And our feet are facing Christ. If you're here this morning and maybe you've been distracted away from Christ. Take these few moments here in the quiet of the room. Confess that. Repent of it. Look to Jesus. Our hope, our joy, the blessing is in him.